0: You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megidoradio.com. That's megidoradio.com. Welcome, everybody. This is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio. For the beginning of February, I think it's the 2nd of February I'm recording this, apologies, it's been quite a while since the last program, and uh, next time I'm away, which is going to be in a few weeks' time again, I won't be in, at home, um, I'm going to try and bring some way of doing podcasting on the road, so it won't be as much of a gap between this and the last program, I think it was been like two months since the last program, so apologies for that, um, could have could have brought some equipment with me, it may not sound as good on the road, but there's a few things um, that I've been sitting on for a while, and uh, in regards to, we're going to be looking at the authorised version, otherwise known as the King James Version, and a uh, recent, fairly recent article, I don't know when this was published exactly, this is called Practical Reasons for Retaining the KJV by uh, Dr. Joel R. Beakey. Um, most people know who Joel Beakey is, and uh, we'll talk about that in a second. And I think usually whenever Joel Beakey speaks on anything, it's very well thought out and uh, very, very carefully. He doesn't just say things willy-nilly, and I, I always appreciate his ministry, and I have for years and years, I mean since back in 2010. So it's one of the reasons it caught my attention. And also the topic is something that I've been meaning to do more on. I haven't done much on issues of Bible translation over the years. I've done stuff in the past, but I'm trying to get back to it again and uh, make it a more constant thing because it is a very, very important issue. Something that is uh, being challenged left, right, and center, especially if you, if you have a conviction about using the text Receptus and then using the best translation available from the text receptus Receptus, uh, which I believe is the authorized version or the otherwise known as the King James Version. So um, hopefully you're all doing well in the Lord. And um, if you've got any questions, we get a radio at gmail.com. That's radio at gmail.com. So we're just going get, to get straight into it and just um, look at what Joel Beaky wrote on on this and uh, something I've been sitting on for a few weeks so we'll get into it. Number one, the practical reasons for retaining the KJV. number one is the standard text of the English Bible so this is going to be more of a historical um, argument and I'm gonna go through and maybe comment a little bit on what Joel Beaky says. I think I agree with 98, 99% of this. This is not a criticism. It's um, one of those areas where I don't agree with myself from a couple of years ago. So there's, there's areas in which we'll all get to the same place and we'll all believe the same thing, but we may have slight nuances of how we defend it in different ways. Um, but uh, Dr. Bickery writes, "It is wise to choose the known over against the unknown. The weaknesses and disadvantages of a particular version of the Bible cannot be assessed apart from a, a thorough trial of daily usage over several years." Many who welcomed the New International Version with great enthusiasm when it when it first appeared in 1973 are now prepared to admit its serious weaknesses as a translation. And uh, so that's the first paragraph, just going to comment on that. And it's true. You know, there was a time years ago when the big translation was the NIV. This The purpose of this podcast is not to trash any particular translation. But I want to point out some principles with the help of this article and other things as well to help you navigate through what has become a lot of chaos today. And it has been very, it hasn't been good for the church. And we have a situation where things are, translations are very individualized. And I think years ago it looked, I think, that everybody was going to go to the NIV. And I think a lot of the books in the 1990s Seem to then not that I yeah maybe see the 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 shortcomings of the NIV and they use the combination of the NIV and the NASB the uh, the 1995 edition I think it was and then no so I say the 1995 edition because there's been the NIVs there's a couple of NIVs there's a the 1973 edition 1984 edition what is it the 2011 edition. NASB has changed a bunch of times, um, different editions of it. And, um, then the ESV is all the range now and, you know, the different editions of that that's changed over the years. And so he's basically making the point that <laughs> the, sh- the shelf life and the use life of these things seem to get shorter and shorter. And, uh, and you even see it with the Legacy Standard Bible, with which is largely with Master Seminary and a lot of men who were involved in the translation work of that. They basically took the NASB from 1985, I think, and then they probably like used that largely and it's not completely the same as the NASB of 1985. But you get my point. It, a few years and it's gone doesn't last the test of time. Dr. Beaky writes, The KJV is well established in the marketplace and in the literature of Christian scholarship. It will continue in production for years to come. Helps and reference works are commonly available. It is not likely that KJV will fade from view and disappear as many versions that were expected to supplant it. And it's very interesting, just my own commentary here, If you look at the best-selling translations, and I've seen various different top 10s, and it it, okay, they all change. Sometimes the NIV is the top seller. Sometimes, is it the ESV sometimes is the top seller? Um, And I'm not saying that the KJV is the top seller in any of these, but it never seems to be in any of the charts I've seen outside of the top three, sometimes number two. And it depends on the country you're in and things like that. And and it will depend on the circles you're in. But overall, nothing is supplanted. It's still selling well. Now, unfortunately, there's a plethora, uh, a massive range that does not seem to even slow down in the amount of translations that are coming out. Now, I'm not against, per se, people having, say, a translation for the purpose of commentary and maybe do their own one or something like that, or I've got several translations on my shelf, but then there's the, uh, the use of the translation for your, your daily Bible reading, your memorization, family worship, and also for church, for the, for the public reading. And I'm not against at all looking at other renderings and things, but at the same time, the one that stands the test of time over many years... Now, I know that the AV had to start off in 1611 and didn't have a massive track record behind it, but it had been worked on for seven years, and it also heavily reliant upon uh, translations previous to it. It wasn't trying to be... Novel or new or anything like that. I was just trying to be the best translation it could possibly be. But we'll get into this in a second. So it ha- it has become. You have to admit, for hundreds of years, the standard text. And various attempts have been made to supplant it. It never has been for a long, long time. Various translations of their moments in the sun, but then they seem to disappear. Um, and you can name other ones as well. Dr. Beaky writes, uh, likewise, the KJV is widely studied and commented on in the literature of biblical scholarship. It will always be a standard of reference, and comparison for Bible commentators. All of the versions are compared to it, contrasted with it, tested by it. Campaigns to sell other versions must attack it or else claim that a particular new version is just like it. The same cannot be said of any other Bible version. and. it's true now i think what a lot of new versions will almost claim and they make too much of this is almost like that english of today is completely different to english of 300 years or the english that is expressed in the authorized version and the fact of the matter is that has the language has the language changed of course it has but it the language is always changing. The language, language has changed in the last 20 years to varying degrees as it sometimes it's just kind of deteriorated in places. Certain meanings of words have slightly changed over the years. But by and large the English of the last 400 years, 500 years in fact, is what, what linguists will call you know, modern English. Now, there's Middle English. If you want to compare it with older English, it really is unintelligible and different and would need work on it. Well, look at something prior to William Tyndale. Maybe the translation done by uh, the Wycliffe translation done in 1382. You can dig that up online. Um, I think like things, classical works like this has nothing to do with the Bible now, but Beowulf and things like that, that's older English. And and if you want to talk about Old English, Old English is prior to the year 1000. So the only real thing, apart from maybe a few words here and there, but you'll have this in any translation, by the way. You'll have to maybe learn some words here and there, but you'll have to do that no matter what translation you use. The these and the those you might have to get used to. Um, but again, again, no matter what translation you use, you will be learn. You'll have to learn some vocabulary. You'll you'll have to grow and learn. Um, I know this is a subjective argument, and this is my subjective, biased opinion. But just take it for what it is. Um, the having used the authorized version since two thousand and nine, and I used the NKJV for a couple of years as well. The, the, the perceived difficulties of the King James Bible are grossly exaggerated. Every translation, no matter what translation you use, will have certain words you'll have to learn and a bit different and whatnot, and even seem archaic at times. So, but there's no other translation of the Bible for the last couple of hundred years that has been the standard text in English. And every single time people try to go away from it, you lose something. It causes disunity. And and whatever supplants it for a period of time doesn't end up lasting. It just simply doesn't. Now, the Geneva Bible before it was excellent as well. Various different editions of it as well. Before that, the, the Geneva translation, various editions, the last one being in 1599. But this has been the one used for centuries and we would want good reason, good compelling reason to ever go away from it. Now that's a historical argument and you may be listening to this and you may not be persuaded by that alone, but I'll pray that you listen more to these. And if you have any questions, we get a radio at gmail.com. Number two, number two, uh, Joel Beakey writes based on full text of the Hebrew and Greek or originals based on the full text of the Greek and, he- and the Hebrew and Greek originals. Uh, Joel Beake writes, based on the Masoretic text, that's the Hebrew Old Testament, and the Text Receptus, Greek New Testament, the King James Version gives the most authentic and fullest available text of the Scriptures, with none of the many omissions and textual rewrites of modern translations, such as the Revised Standard Version, RSV, and the NIV. And that's very, very true. Now, I know what the counter-argument is. Well, it was never part of the original anyway. When we start claiming that, we're entering into dangerous territory. What do I mean by that? For example, one area that's commonly contested is Mark chapter 16, verses 9 to 20. And there are a number of people today, John MacArthur included. And by the way, I appreciate John MacArthur's ministry. B.B. Warfield rejected this as well. So me pointing out these people, I am not saying that these people are wicked, evil, and wrong. I do think that they are wrong in rejecting part of Scripture. It's unbelief. But men err, I err. Yeah, so okay this is the position I'm coming from and anybody I'm criti- critiquing here but the devil is is subtle and cunning and we've got to be very very careful. So the end of mark 16 is has been re- kind of rejected since the end of the 19th century and for that view to hold any water, you would have to hold to the view that the, the scriptures were corrupted in the late second century. Why do I say that? Well, Mark chapter 16, verse 19, was quoted by Irenaeus and against, I think it's against heresies, he quotes it But it is clearly, I think that's the year 180 AD or thereabouts. So, and I don't want to misrepresent DA Carson or anything like that, but DA Carson, I think the argument he has is that it was it it became corrupted because he doesn't believe it's part of the original, or at least he has question marks over it. It's been a while since I read Carson on it, so I'm trying to be careful here. Um. But that it was added at some stage. That's the argument. We we never discovered this, apparently, until when? About the 1880s, 1870. Was it around the, 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 the discovery of the Codex Sinaiticus by, by Constantine van Tischendorf in the 19th century? So you might point to the Vaticanus, Codex Vaticanus, the other codex that was sourced in the late 19th century. But that was something the reformers didn't use. They were aware of it and was discovered in the Pope's library right in time for the Reformation. Isn't that, Wasn't that convenient? All of that to say, we would have to say that the scriptures were corrupted in a huge text of scripture. From verse ninety nine, no, sorry, from verse nine of chapter sixteen to verse twenty, the NESB is so confused in This, that I think, it puts down three different possible endings to it at that point. Um, some translations put square brackets around. It. It's like you decide. But I'm using this as an example. There's other places. I mean, there's other individual texts depending on what you look at. Uh, depending on what edition of the Nestle-Allen United Bible Society text you're using. But it is a an edited and different text. The Greek underlying text. Now you might say, well... Mark 16's in there and you have to make up your own mind. That's probably more textual criticism. But there are, I've seen, there's a new text. It wasn't, it came out from Tyndale House and it, it takes out the end, it takes out the beginning of John 8. Long and short of it, whether it's the comma Johannaeim, which is First uh, John 5, 7. And these three are one. The Father, the Word, and the Spirit, that text in 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, it's really like part of one verse and part of another verse, but, or whether it's the beginning of John 8, or whether it's the end of Mark 16, or whether it's a load of other texts that are taken out of various points and put back in, depending on the editions, It is not the text, the the Nestle Aland text is not the text of the Reformation. So it's not the full text that the Texas Receptus is. One other thing I'll say about this, and I I hope I hope I hope this 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 topic is. In one way, very simple, and one way can be very, very complicated and can get very, very technical. But I want to try and keep it as simple as possible just for anybody, the, the average person in the pew. As Francis Turretin, in Volume 1 of his his Systematic Theology, the Institute of Elenctic Theology, I think it's called, um, he argues that if the beginning of John 8... First John 5 7 and the end of Mark 16, Mark 16, verses 9, 9 to 20 are not part of the text. That is a corrupted text, and that is impossible. I'm paraphrasing his argument here. But that was the understanding of the reformers. Up until around the time probably 19th century started changing. It started changing around Princeton. You're going to see a different opinion with A. Hodge and all those guys, sure, and, you know, and a lot of people like the Princeton guys, and they're usually excellent. But it went the direction it went eventually, and I think the view of the text didn't help. So we have this full text, not a corrupted text. We believe that God has kept His word pure. If you hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith, I think the Second Baptist London, Second Baptist, no, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is very similar. In you know, Chapter One, Paragraph Eight, that God has kept His word pure, doesn't get corrupted and has to be restored the view of Bruce Metzger. That's a different view. That's contrary to the confessional view of the text. Um, so, getting back to the next paragraph by Joel Beek The reader may suppose that such is not the case with the English Standard Version of 2000. However, the publisher plainly states that the ESV is adapted from the Revised Standard Version of the Bible copyright division of christian education of the national council of the church of churches of christ in the usa those who remember the rsv can attest that few other versions made greater use of the methods and findings of higher criticism a corrupt tree cannot bring forth good fruit and i'll be honest i didn't really i can't really comment on that much because i didn't really look at that and I've heard that claim over the years that really just heavily relies on the RSV. I don't dispute that. I just personally wouldn't know a lot about the RSV, except knowing that it is not a great rule. Next paragraph. um, This is broken down into different letters. Uh, A, point A. Oldest does not mean best. And we're getting into areas of textual criticism and manuscripts. And manuscript comes from the word manu, which is hand, something written by hand. So if you hear the word manuscript, it's just, just an old piece of paper. Somebody wrote something on, usually a long time ago. And, and people get a bit giddy when they go to the museum and they find something that's really old. And it tells us something about the ancient world sometimes, but you've got to be careful. Because uh, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes, um, as has been attested throughout history, sometimes we can get it wrong. Horribly wrong. Oldest does not mean best. The Westcott and Hort arguments, the oldest manuscripts are the most reliable and that age, quote, age carries more weight than volume, unquote, are not necessarily true. It could well be that the two oldest complete manuscripts were found in such unusual excellent condition because they were already recognized as faulty manuscripts in their time and therefore were placed aside and not recopied until worn out, as were the reliable manuscripts. This is further support by the numerous existing differences between the, Vati- the Vatican, that's Vatican, as I was referring to earlier, the Vatican, and Sinaitic manuscripts. Okay, oldest does not mean best. So, one of the canons of textual criticism, it's such a thing you can't question it because it's, you know, set in stone almost, you know, the way it's taught. Yeah, o- oldest does not mean best. Oldest does not mean. No, it doesn't. Um, there can be corruptions and falsehoods and all sorts of things written in any manuscript of any era. Even if you found something in 95 AD buried in Galatia purporting to be Paul's letter, but what if it's completely different? Paul's letter to Galatians, and what if it's completely different? Leaving out half the letter. You say, oh, well, half the letter's missing. So it, it all depends on how you understand it. You see, people get, oh, it's an old document, so therefore, well, people make the same arguments with the Gnostic Gospels. Oh, the Gospel of Thomas, apparently, Um, which was never written by Thomas of of the scriptures, but it was kind of uh, of a Gnostic. You can tell by reading... If you ever just read... If you want to know that the the Gospel of Thomas is spurious, you just... Well, you read it. It's one of the more plausible-sounding Gospels. It's one that sounds the most legit of all the Gnostic Gospels, uh, but it... um, it doesn't line up with scripture, to put it plainly. And it comes no earlier than 180 AD. But you could be swayed by, oh, look, it's very old, so therefore, not necessarily. There's all sorts of documents, and there's the... Supposed book of Enoch that kind of floats around the place, and people think that should be part of the Bible as well. But according to most sources, it, that's that's not the Enoch from the scriptures. That's um, that's a. It's been written much later than the time of Enoch. This is like written 200 BC, the intertestamental period. So, yeah, oldest does not mean best. Now, is it good to be as close as possible? Sure. But it doesn't necessarily mean that these are more reliable. By the way, uh, the the Sinaitica manuscript, what is that? Fourth century? supposed to be from Vaticanus, apparently, is the fourth century. I say apparently because there's many different writings on the Vaticanus that are not just fourth century. But we'll just say both of them are very early, fourth century, whatever they are. And over the couple of hundred years that has gone from the original writings of Paul and John and Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and wh- whoever else, that there hasn't been possible of corruptions come in there? And people have. there. There's a tested... People in the early church who did bring in intentional corruptions and things like that. I think Valentinius was one guy, um, I think it was corruption of John 1, verse 18, I think it was. Anyway, so regardless of our knowledge of history or knowledge of manuscripts, right? Of course, either some people can make mistakes or whatever. But one one thing that we do have that the word of God has been kept pure in all ages. God promises to preserve his word. And it's not going to be lost and corrupted, and we don't know which is which, because God is not the author of confusion. So all this does not mean best, and it's very true. Volume B. Um, The King James Version, this is Joel Beaky writing, the The King James Version, New Testament, is based upon the traditional text, Sometimes called the ecclesiastical or majority text, the vast majority of more than 5,000 known partial and complete Greek manuscripts follow this textual reading. Now, I said at the beginning that I agree with about 98% of what he wrote here. This is one area where this is... I think this is the only area, from what I remember, that I disagree with him on. It's the use of the term majority text the the majority text is really a different it's a different greek manuscript it's a greek text a completely different greek new testament entirely from the text receptus not every part of the text receptus is based upon majority readings most of it is You know, most of it is supported by the majority, okay? Um, That would be the Byzantine. And yes, majority ratings. But the majority text was a pickering, and uh, it's fairly recent. I think it was like in the 60s and 70s. No Bible translations have really been based upon it. A number of the guys who were involved in the New King James were quite favorable towards the majority text. The majority text kind of counts manuscripts. It rejects First John 5, 7. And it has something very, very similar. The majority text view of Scripture is something very, very similar to it that the Nessel Island. It won't be as prone to as many changes and everything else like that. The I think well, we've got to get realizes God promised to preserve his word and kept it pure in all ages sure but he doesn't say that the you know the majority of manuscripts that survive to the 21st century will all have this reading we don't know what manuscripts have been lost in time i think it was dan wallace even said and Dan Wallace wouldn't agree with me at all that I can't remember the exact quotation, but we have lost far more manuscripts to, you know, wear and tear and age and everything else. They've turned to dust basically. And then we have in storage right now, we, you know, we have loads of thousands of manuscripts, but the manuscript, we don't know what manuscripts they use thousands of years ago and things like that or hundreds of years ago. You so know people say, Well, there's not one manuscript that says this. Well, uh today, yeah, maybe that's the case in one or two verses. But I think we've got to be a little bit humble that we don't we realize that we don't have everything that the King the King James translators had. I mean, of course, yeah, of course it was the basically the text of Receptus, and probably based upon what was it fifteen ninety eight Baye's edition. But the the difference in the views, I get, I understand why people talk about volume and weight and how many manuscripts and counting them, and it it sounds very plot. It sounds great and it sounds very reassuring. You've all these witnesses that attest towards this. Mm, I it works a lot of the time, but every now and again. The, the the Texas Receptus doesn't follow these principles. When John Calvin was convinced the 1st John 5-7, the me Yohannian, um, which is the text, get it up there in front of me, 1st John 5-7, for there are three that bear, bear record in heaven. Uh, the Father, the Word, the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There are three that bear witness in earth. The Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. Part of that is missing, okay? Part of seven and part of eight is missing. It's gonna grab it's gonna grab a new a new translation just to show you what I mean in case people aren't aware of this. I'm sure you are Yeah, this is the this is look. I'm just gonna grab something here. This is the NET New English Translation. I have a lot of translations on my shelf. I use, I use them. It's just, I would just never would never use this from the pulpit because it is inferior for a multitude of reasons. So, First um, John five seven, First John five seven and eight. Because you might say, "Oh well, First John five seven is there, you know, an eight there. What's the problem?" Well, there's a big chunk missing. The NET seven and eight says, "For there are three that testify: the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three three agree are in agreement." It's a little bit, a little bit overly dynamic there, but that's part of. Um, for there are three that bear record. Isn't it? For there are three that bear, or three that, yeah, for the three that bear record. After that, in heaven, the, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three agree in one. There are three that bear witness in earth, the, the Spirit, the blood, and the... These things agree in one. Where is this? I always get confused with this. The three, yeah, it, it, it It's back again with the spirit and the word and the blood. First part of eight is missing as well. For there are three that bear witness in earth. Okay, so that does not follow those... Yeah, in the other texts and everything else. So I would say where God has kept it, preserved it, and kept it pure. And I think that... that, If you want to talk about canon... Textual criticism, keep that before you. Because it's a, it's a promise of God, it's not a promise of some textual critic from the 18th, 19th century who was largely leaning in a classicist direction or, you know, thinking more in the humanities and trying to be academically respectable rather than being somebody who's really, really <laughs> adhering to a lot of the principles of the Reformation. Joel Beaker writes, C, church history, the received text. So that's the only place where we would just disagree. Just that part, the volume thing. But I, I'm kind of nitpicking here. Um, we, we agree in 99% of the things. C, church history, the received text has been used by the Christian church throughout, throughout history. Um... I would explain this a little bit differently, but I'll continue. The the Churches of the Reformation all use Bibles based upon traditional texts. For example, the Dutch... uh, I'm going to butcher this pronunciation. Staten Vert Alling, and everybody, all my Dutch Reformed friends, you feel free to laugh at me after that terrible pronunciation. Produced by Order of the Synod of Dort based upon the ecclesiastical text. I would just explain, like, it's not that the very, very edition. Yeah, by the time of the Reformation received text earlier Greek the readings found in the received text. See, it can kind of get confusing because, you know, as I said, the received text used throughout the Christian church, history, has been used. The- yes, that's true. If you want... Rather than we just... The the readings found in the Texas Receptus have been used throughout church history, just to be very, very precise, okay, in this, because I just know, I've read too much of the other side, and I know the way that they will often counteract that. And it's true. What he's saying is true. Uh, point number three, this is on a different section, Joel Beeky writes, a more faithful method of translation. Now, if you're not convinced, and you're somebody who disagrees with me up until this point, I don't think that this will maybe convince you. I'm not sure, but we'll look into it a little bit. If A more faithful method of translation. The KJV employed a method of verbal equivalence, word for word, rather than the method of paraphrase or of dynamic excuse me, equivalence, meaning for meaning, used in the NIV. The result is the KJV presents what biblical authors wrote not what a translator or a committee think they meant this can be kind of tricky because when you're dealing from one language into another some idioms or some phrases don't lend themselves to going from one language into another and there are some difficult decisions the King James, no translation, is completely word for word and wooden. Right? What he's saying is true, but it can be just a little bit overly simplified. Um, there are times when even the NIV is slightly more literalistic than the King James, okay? But generally speaking, what the King James seeks to do is go word for word, and it is far more faithful to the text and closer to the text and literal. And there are those times when to translate it literally is misleading. Um, there is one example now this is something I'm gonna this example I'm giving here is something that is the case no matter what the translation you're using. at least I can't think of any translation that doesn't do this. It says in second John uh chapter one there's only one chapter verse twelve, having many things to write unto you, I would not write with paper and ink. But I trust to come unto you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. Now, literally, literally, that's not face to face. Literally in Greek, it's mouth to mouth. Now, if you translate it that way into English, that's going to be really, really confusing, really misleading. So the, the King James does it sometimes. It does it sometimes with God forbid in Romans. Meganoito, which you know may it never be so. You know, the it's the strongest rejection of something. Okay. There are exceptions to this, of course, because there's no exact There's no exact science exactly to translation work either. But this method is generally true. I think I used the NKJV for about four years. And having used that, I think it's probably... The King James is sharper and closer to the original. And it's not that the NKGV a lot of times is a false translation, but it's just not as close of a translation as the original. And it often sacrifices, makes decisions of readability rather than accuracy. So sometimes you're just trying to be, you're trying to have the flow and readability and things like that, but you actually kind of sacrifice a great degree of the accuracy one point I'll just make as well. One of the things that the NIV does, the the King James doesn't do. And I think this is maybe something a bit more objective to point out. The NIV is far more interpretive. What I mean by that is this. And it is kind of what Joel B. is saying there is that because of its meaning for so basically not what a translator or committee thinks they meant. So you read the Greek and you, there's three possible interpretations of that text, the theological interpretations, how you understand it, what exact focus is in, in view. And you could translate it one way where you show all three possibilities. You're not narrowing it down unnecessarily. Sometimes there's nothing you can do about that and it just is the way it is. But sometimes... So that's why you stick word for word. You're you're copying the, the order of the words as much as possible. Sometimes you just can't. You're sticking to the grammar and the layout and everything else as much as possible and the idioms and the phrases as much as possible but the niv usually interprets and takes all that which is why people find it easier to read because it's basically here's what it means rather than what it says you see the difference it's really taking away the work. One thing I didn't notice as well, that he's comparing the NIV and the King James. Even I noticed, and this is just one example I can think of off the top of my head, Gird the loins of your mind. A lot of new, like the NASB even, which is kind of supposedly very literal, makes the decision to translate it, ready your mind. Now, is that what it means? Yeah. But a translation should not be involved in interpretation. It should be involved in translation. The interpretation should then be left to the reader. And there's a sense in which the translator needs as much as possible. I know there's times you can't do this. there, And people will think of examples who are very, very skilled in this. But as much as possible, the translator is to get out of the way. And I'm not saying that this isn't hard. It is very hard. By the way, we already have an excellent translation, so we don't need to reinvent the wheel. We have the authorized version. So it's pointing, it's translating word for word and not giving you what it, here's what it says, you know, here's what it means. So rather than having the three possibilities, you might get in the AV or you're just getting the one, that specific translator thinks. So you're also being shaped modern day theology, which is probably not very helpful. Um, but people have gone away from the NIV recently. I mean, you can bring up the NIV. A lot of... The NIV is not near... In certain circles I've come across, anyway, it's not nearly as popular as it used to be. And I'll be honest, it's... Of all the, if you want to use the word, conservative translations, it is by far my least favorite. Because... It is so different, so interpretive, and so in so many areas, it's it is just a poor translation. Number five, this is uh, Joel Beaker writing. This a more precise idiom. Often attacked at this very point, the King James version actually is more accurate and helpful translation, precisely because of the archaic pronouns, thou, thy, thee, etc. Both Hebrew and Greek. Distinguish clearly between the second person singular, thou, and the second plural so plural, ye and you. In many statements, it makes an important difference, John 3, 7, example John 3, 7. In a sense, it is correct to say that in praying, the Lord Jesus used thou, God is one, not many. In a sense, it is correct to say that in praying... Okay, so, for he definitely used the Hebrew or Greek equivalent. So, that's probably not going to convince a lot of people. I think um, some kind of work needs to be done on that. The in the thou and the, the differences between... I would even dispute the words archaic. The and thou was never that common hundreds of years ago. One of the, like, so the singular and plural, that's a good argument for it. And it, look, doesn't take much learning to get there. But one other argument is, as well, you'll notice this with prayers. Thou and thee. It's far more for formal, and you'll see it in in languages where you have the informal form "you." That's the object pronoun. So I, you know, if I say I'm going to talk to you, or if you say I, w- I will speak unto thee. We well, we don't speak like that to your friends. No, you don't speak like that. But if you notice translations, older translations now of I was listening to a documentary, um, and there was a, a ruler who, who lived about what was it? It was I think it was it was it was a documentary on Joseph Stalin, and there was a translation of it, and I, I always remember it was like. And the translation in English was unto thee. This, now this is a translation we done a couple of decades ago. Unto thee or Stalin or something like that. And this is nothing to do with, I don't, I don't know if they were treating him like a deity, but you'll notice a lot of respect is carried when you refer to and use thee and thou. And that's kind of been lost in English. And I wonder if for a long long time I wonder if the royal family are ever referred to in that way up until recent times but there is, there there's there's two good reasons to retain these in a thousand distinguishing in single and plural but also in terms of respect in how we speak to God and I just think we whatever the language we're using, if you speak English, you speak French, Italian, Russian, whatever. You use, in that language, the most reverential language to speak unto God. And there's prayers in the Bible as well, so th- this is important when it comes to that. And, yeah, so, n- let's get on to our next point. Number six, Joel Biggie writes, the best liturgical version. The KJV excels as a version for public worship. That is why it has been so widely. In the churches. Used so widely in the churches. The requirements of the sanctuary. Are not those of the classroom. Students might read several versions. Ancient and modern. But none surpasses the King James Version. As a liturgical version. That is adapted to the needs. And circumstances of public worship. I, I agree with that. Um. I don't really have anything to add on, on that point there. Number seven, the best format for preaching. King James transitioning has been laid out verse by verse um, rather than paragraphs. I'm not convinced of that yet. Uh, he might have a point, but I, I have not been convinced of this point for using it yet. He says, though for most of the text, paragraphs are indicated by the, the, the pilcrow or uh, paragraph mark, the Greek and. He, no, the Hebrew and Greek text, of course, has no paragraphing at all. The verse-by-verse format best serves the purpose of the verse-by-verse consecutive expository sermonizing and Bible study. I agree. I think it's better. Um, but... I wouldn't... I, would, I wouldn't I would use it as an argument for the use of the King James. And... I'm just... Look, because I, I think we're running out of time here. We're getting near the end, but... If you get, if you just Google, uh, this is available from different places. I think it's a PDF online manual. Church uh, was it Salzburg, Salisbury. Sorry. Um, so practical reasons for retaining the KJV. I'm just going to um, read out the, the just the, this is just the headings. All right, and. Um, and you can read it in your own time. And then I'm going to give some reasons why I use the authorized version and why I think we should be using in the English in English speaking world. If you if if English isn't your first language, then you use something else. Um, there's other excellent translations in other languages as well. Um, but the the history of the English Bible is is different than than most languages. We've been really really blessed in the English language. So, um, the best format for preaching, the most beautiful translation. And I think most people would agree with that. You know, Psalm 23 is typically used that way. That's my own commentary on that. Number nine, a- an ecumenical text for Reformed Christians. Um, I, I think it would be difficult to disagree with that in a way that nothing else really can. I- now to try to be fair to, and I, and I think this is in, is not as close to the original as the King James, but the, the NKJV was translated, I think by about 120 and they're from all sorts of backgrounds. But the, the bet, the benefit of the King James is the, the scholarship's better, but you know, first and foremost, uh, it inc- it included a lot of scholars from the 17th century and they're all reformed and Calvinistic, whereas you don't have that with the NKJV and um, so a version that sounds like the Bible, 10 um, 11 the character of the translators I think we've already kind of commented on that Number 12, a Bible for those who walk in the old paths. So, okay, like, you can... We're all going to use slightly different arguments. I think the only thing is just to use maturity text and the volume use when it comes to manuscripts. But otherwise, a really, really helpful, really good article. I'm sure... um, that people were helped by that now i'm just going to give some additional or not even additional maybe very very similar sounding reasons for the use of the authorized version what number the the one argument i would use is unity any attempt to go away from the av has been massively disunity or there's a lot of disunity i mean everybody's got their own translation I like the CSB and I like the NASB and I like this translation. And I like that, that translation. And it's all to do with personal preference and everybody's got their own translation. Everybody's got So it's very, it's led to disunity as another argument that I would use as well is what you call maybe an ecclesiastical or a kind of um, a church based authority. Now, The authority in the church is subordinate and under that of the Bible, of course. This is, you know, in our Westminster Confession of Faith. But as a Presbyterian, the idea that you can just use any translation that you like is not at all consistent with being Presbyterian, that we have uh, church courts and we have. If you are Presbyterian, I'm sure that you've... And if you are Reformed and maybe you have a different con- confession of faith, you're going to have something similar to this or akin to this. I'm just going to read chapter 1, paragraph 8 of the Westminster Confession of Faith. Just grab it there. So paragraph 8 of chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith... The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old. And the New Testament in Greek, which which at the time of the writing of this was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his, and this is the really important part here, something that really only the Textus receptus can actually claim to. And it says, and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So because this has been kept pure, it is authentical. It is actually the word of God. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass away, now one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Matthew 5, verse 18. So, and talks about translation as well. Just skipping on a little bit in this up, but the, but because these original tongues are not known to all the people who have right unto an interest in the scriptures and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, therefore they are to be translated into the vulgar language of every nation which they have come and you probably say oh that's not the King James it is the King James <laughs> that is the vulgar tongue that the word of God may dwell perfectly in therein. now now I, I mentioned church authority so we need we need what has been allowed for use if you look at the the directory public worship the directory of public worship was adopted in 1646 by an act of the general assembly of the church of scotland and was drawn up during the westminster assembly for the purpose of unity and uniformity of worship in the three kingdoms of scotland england and ireland and in this it makes reference to what is to be read in the public worship of God. It says this in, in of public reading of the Holy Scriptures. It says in one paragraph on the list, it says, all the canonical books of the Old and New Testament, but none of those which are commonly called Apocrypha, shall be publicly read in the vulgar tongue. Out of the best allowed translation, out of the best allowed translation distinctly that all may hear and understand. The best allowed translation. The problem is with the NKJV, that is that's Thomas Nelson. That's not a church court deciding what is to be used. We're also not independent, so we don't can't just decide, hey, we're gonna allow this no, this is the best allowed translation. So whether it's Thomas... So you're getting all these publishing houses, Crossway with the ESV. This is Zondervan with the NIV? The Lachman Foundation, I don't think the NASB is with any... Is, NASB is slightly different. And the the Legacy Standard Bible is kind of with an independent church. But you don't have an ecclesiastical court that has looked into these things a lot. I believe it is the wisest thing and to keep, if we're Presbyterian, to the Second Reformation attainments and the use of of the best allowed translation, i.e. the AV. Now, there's other arguments you could use as well of, I do believe, that the AV is a better translation than the NKJV. Also, you could point out the oracles of God in the Old Testament given to Israel. I think it's like Romans chapter 3, verse 2. It's been given to the church. It's not been handed over to academia. It's not been handed over to publishing houses. So when we're choosing what to use, we need to go with what is faithful and trustworthy. Um, history and use, we've kind of already talked about that. One of the arguments that's often used as well is like, it just makes it sound like, well, nobody uses the AV anymore. This is not true. The AV is still massively popular, and in all the attempts to supplant it, it has not gone away. And no one translation has taken its place. So again, you go back to unity. And I ask you the question, has the English language changed that much in the last 400 years? Now, you may say it has. But I will point this out to you, that up until... I don't know exactly when the last translation started, stopped using these and those. It might have been the 70s with the NA, NIV. It might have been the 1960s with the NASB, the New American Standard Version. But if you look at... And this surprised me when I discovered it. that The American Standard Version, which was the American Standard Bible, that used these and those. This, and this was translated was a little bit over 100 years ago. Were these and thous common back then? The, and again, to go back to the, the reason I, I, I talk about this, this was not common language. But I think what's gone out of the English language is respect. Respect for those in authority. Respect. And we, we've almost... I would argue these are not archaisms. They're just not, they're just, they're still in the English language. We just don't use it. And I would argue, not as a linguist, I'm not, but I would argue that we've lost much, lost the use of much of the language in terms of respect. And I think, even just from an English language point of view, we need to revive it a little bit. If you look at William Tyndale an excellent known as an excellent linguist a brilliant translator and one of the things that it did it elevated the use of the English language so we should use when we're addressing God in the translation we use everything else like that I just hope and I just encourage people away from the cacophony of all the different, I like this transition, I like that, I like this transition. And we all, hopefully, in the future, can be singing from the same hymn sheet. Because when we go away, when we've attempts to go away from the AV, it's led to disunity. And I just pray for the grace of God that this program, hopefully has been a blessing to you. Hopefully it'll be food for thought. Any questions, make a radio at gmail.com. This has been Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.